Good morning or good afternoon, depending on the location from which you may have joined. I'm Claude Stansbury, a U.S. tax partner at Freshfields and co-moderator of today's tax talk on the European Union's BT21 package. Leading the discussion today on our panel are Bob Van Castren, a tax partner in Amsterdam, Leah Burrell, a principal consultant with our EU regulatory and public affairs team in Brussels, Georg Roderberg, tax partner in Dusseldorf, and my co-moderator, Lisa Bieber, a counsel in our global transactions team in New York. Bob, can you tell us what EU BT21 is and why we're talking about it? Thanks, Claude. BT21 is the EU's business taxation for the 21st century package, uh, which is a set of measures proposed by the EU to combat tax avoidance, uh, address challenges of the digital economy. And it also includes various other initiatives that seek to improve the tax system in the EU from a sustainability perspective. As they've done over the past 10 years with these measures, the EU builds on a lot of the work that has been done by the OECD and the agreements that have been reached at OECD level, and in some cases takes them a bit further. Not all of these measures are equally likely to be introduced, but some definitely are, and those that are uh, will directly impact investors investing into the EU. Thanks, Bob. I heard you mention improving or responding to challenges of the digital economy. I understand that part of the BT21 package will include directives implementing OECD's Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 that have been very much in the news over the past year. Pillar 1 addresses perceived issues arising under the longstanding international tax framework under which taxing rights are based on physical presence in a jurisdiction and profits generated from intangibles are taxed only in the jurisdiction where those assets are owned. What started with separate national digital service taxes has become, under the OECD, a residual profits tax on the largest and most profitable multinationals that would allocate taxing rights over group profits in excess of 10% to market jurisdictions from which the group derives revenues, regardless of whether the multinational has any physical presence there. Regulated financial services and extractives are excluded, and Pillar 1 would only apply to groups with annual turnover in excess of Euro 20 billion and a 10% profit margin. This high threshold of application reflects the U.S. position that Pillar 1 should apply to no more than 100 of the large multinationals, and even then faces huge hurdles on implementation in the U.S. Pillar 2 is much more like guilty for U.S.-headed groups, the tax enacted in the U.S. in 2018. It seeks to ensure that multinationals are subject to tax at a minimum effective rate of 15% on profits in any given jurisdiction, with the aim of reducing profit shifting and also the incentive of low tax jurisdictions to race to the bottom on corporate rates. The proposed mechanism for achieving this includes an income inclusion rule similar to guilty and an undertax payments rule that is similar to the shield rules proposed in the Biden administration green book. Therefore, pillar two in its similarity US rules is more likely to be implemented with cooperation from the US. So, Leah, speaking to us as the ear to the ground in the EU, do you think the EU directives implementing OECD Pillar 1 and 2 are likely to face challenges within the EU? Yeah, thanks, Claude. Uh, indeed, if the Commission proposes two directives, uh, one on Pillar 1, one on Pillar 2, as seems to be the, the current intention, then the unanimous approval of the 27 member states will be needed. If there is no unanimity, one option would be to use the so-called enhanced cooperation procedure. It's basically a procedure designed to overcome stalemates where a particular proposal is blocked by one or more member states who do not want to take part. 
But there is only one precedent of enhanced cooperation in the field of taxation, and that is for the financial transaction tax or FTT. And it is actually a bad precedent uh, because negotiations, even in enhanced cooperation, never concluded, and there is still no agreement for an FTT in Europe. So the European Commission is not keen to use this enhanced cooperation mechanism, and it will do everything to avoid it. So the preferred option of the European Commission will be to try and gather unanimous support via political negotiations and political trade-offs. So the European Commission is reasonably confident that an agreement on Pillar 2 will be reached. And one evidence of its good faith in really trying to reach an international agreement is that the European Commission agreed to suspend its proposal to have a European digital levy. This digital levy was supposed to go directly to the EU budget to finance part of the ambitious recovery plan that was agreed in Europe as a follow-up to the COVID crisis. So it remains to be seen if the digital levy will be entirely dropped forever or if it might come back on the Commission's agenda. At the moment, the European Commission's top priority is to make sure that both pillars are implemented into EU law. And once that's done, in probably 2023, the Commission plans to table a new framework for business taxation in the EU that will be called BEFIT. BEFIT is Business in Europe Framework for Income Taxation. And that will basically take further the work done on the two pillars. So the intention would be to provide a single corporate tax rulebook for the EU based on apportionment and a common tax base. And this will borrow concept from Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Uh, for instance, the use of a formula for the partial reallocation of profits under Pillar 1 and common rules for calculating the tax base uh, for the purposes of applying Pillar 2. Well, that's very interesting. So possibly a hybrid approach uh, adopting parts of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Bob, what about the other measures in the BT21 package? I've heard a lot about DEBRA and how this might challenge the traditional line between debt and equity. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, another one of those acronyms that we love. DEBRA stands for Debt Equity Bias Reduction Allowance. And the background is that taxpayers are currently incentivized to use debt funding rather than equity funding because interest costs are deductible and costs of equity are non-deductible. And this leads to groups being highly leveraged and exposed to high insolvency risks. And the EU now seeks to end this bias towards debt, thereby reducing these risks and promoting stability. This goal can be achieved by either restricting interest deductibility or granting allowances for equity funding or doing both. That's still open. And in order to get input from the market on how to best shape this measure, there is public consultation that's not too many responses yet to the consultation and the responses that have been submitted are not uh, overly positive. Because the proposal is currently still very vague and it is still unclear how much political support there is across the member states, it's quite hard to predict the chances of implementation in the short term or what the specific content will be. But it is clear that, as Leo also indicated, the EU's current priorities are with implementing proposals that have already been accepted at OECD level, such as pillars one and two. But if and when this proposal does move forward, it may materially impact both internal and external financing structures. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye out. 
Yes, thanks, Bob. That does sound some, like something we should keep a, a watch for. It's strange. Interest deductibility has been a perennial area for tax measures, but generally in the context of business erosion. And it, it's interesting that this time uh, the focus is more on deleveraging and concerns about insolvency. So, George, we've been focusing on measures that change the international tax framework, but there's also a strong ESG component to the EU's tax agenda, isn't there? Yes. There are various measures that seek to improve the tax system in the EU from a sustainability perspective. All those changes are part of another EU initiative, the so-called EU 55 package, uh, which is, uh, generally speaking, aimed at bringing down the EU's environmental and energy regulatory framework in line with its goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. This is where the name stems from and to attain climate neutrality by 2050. Can you talk a little bit more about how the EU55 package is expected to impact the EU's tax policy? Yes, there, there are various measures, but I think there are three items that are most interesting for tax people. First, um, there's a revision of the energy taxation directive. Second, there's a revision of the already existing EU emissions trading system, which was introduced to govern and reduce carbon use within the EU. And then third, complementing to the, this ETS system, a proposal for a so-called carbon border adjustment mechanism. And if I go a little bit more into the details, I start with the energy taxation directive, which already now provides some kind of EU-wide framework for the taxation of, of certain types of energy. And in order to speed things up in this area, the current revision of this directive removes various exemptions, for example, for aviation fuel and oil that is used in the shipping industry. And by changing the structure of the tax rates based on energy content and environmental performance, which means, for example, at the moment you have a privileged taxation for, for diesel fuel other than petrol, but because diesel has a much higher energy content, it will be higher taxed in the future. And the EU hopes to speed things up in changing the use of energy into a more environmental friendly way. Second point, revision of the EU emissions trading system, the ETS system. There, the, the Commission also tries to speed things up by reducing the current emissions by 61% compared to 2015. And this is done first by steepening up the annual reduction goals. So the mechanism works in a way that you need more and more certificates uh, with every preceding year, just in order to give an incentive to be more environmental friendly. This is steepened up. And then, and this will probably have the biggest impact on also our listeners if they are invested in the EU, uh, certain uh, exemptions will be deleted. So for example, if you are, producing cement, iron, steel, aluminium, fertilizers, and electricity, then you are currently exempted in a way that you get certificates for free. This will be reduced. And then finally, as of 2030, no longer av available at all. This is a, a very substantial impact on producers of those products in the EU. And the problem is that they thus become much less competitive on the world market because they have those higher certificate costs. And in order to complement this a little bit and make up for those changes, the EU has also 
introduced this third column, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which means if you are importing those goods, cement, iron, steel, aluminium, fertilizers, and electricity into the EU, from now on, you also have to acquire CBAM certificates and have to hand them in for those products. For the first few years, from 2023 to 2026, you get those certificates for free. So it's more about learning the system and notification. But afterwards, you have to buy those certificates, and then it becomes difficult and costly. Gary, that's interesting. The CBAM mechanism in particular, this the last of the three components of the carbon neutrality program, it sounds similar to carbon adjusted border tax or adjustment tariff that's been part of the Senate's recent proposals on finding an alternative to individual and corporate rate hikes as a, a revenue offset for the $3.5 trillion budget plan. The uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, introduced carbon tax as an alternative source of revenue. So it'll be interesting to see if, if perhaps there's alignment between this CBAM proposal and what happens in the U.S. Indeed. So if the U.S. would follow the same route, it, it would be interesting because then we would create some kind of multi multinational framework in this regard that could speed things up in this area to further reduce carbon impact, at least for the, those products listed. In case the U.S. would also introduce some kind of national carbon tax, this would also get interesting for the CBAM mechanism because under the current draft mechanism, there is some kind of credit or exemption mechanism in case the imported goods have already been subject to some kind of carbon tax, carbon certificate mechanism in their source state. So if the US would do this, it would bring the two systems within the US and the EU much more in line. And then George, from a US perspective, what's important for our US participants that are facing all of these new measures? I think the most important thing that also our U.S. listeners, if they are doing business in EU, have to cope with is to, to become familiar and to deal with the various administrative challenges, which are especially imposed by this CBAM mechanism. You, you have to know, for example, you, you have to have some kind, it's called the authorized declarant. It's someone who will file your CBAM, uh, your CBAM returns in the future annually. And you will also hand in the relevant certificates. If you don't have someone who is doing this, or if this person is not fully complying with the CBAM mechanism, in a worst case, you can even block it from the EU market. So the impact of not getting familiar with those new administrative provisions might be substantial. And the administrative hurdles are, are really substantial because the certificates are not only imposed on the import of the raw goods, but also for combined products. For example, if you use steel, which was produced by emitting carbon into some kind of machine, then you have also for this machine to calculate the carbon that was used by producing the relevant steel, and then also have to file the relevant CBA return and hand in the certificates. And this you can imagine the combined goods might be infinitely complex and, and therefore this is really an exercise. You need someone, an expert who does the valuation, you have to comply with the relevant forms and so on. It's really burdensome and therefore it's, it's really wise and reasonable to start this early. Sounds like there's a few challenges then, but overall it sounds like this is a real shift in, in direction in terms of sustainability. 
So besides environmental measures, what else is on the EU's ESG agenda? You see, and, and the EU is, is also um, pushing this forward, a, a wider global trend towards the various ESG goals, so, so environment, social and government goals. And this is also implemented by other measures beyond this EU 55 package. To give you an example, there are new mechanisms, DAC 7 and DAC 8, which expand the already existing EU information reporting requirements to new industries, digital platforms, and crypto assets. And then a very big topic is, you might know, country-by-country country reporting is something that, that is already discussed for a few years now. This becomes public in the near future based on the plans of the EU, which means effective tax rates, certain information about tax structure and other things have to be made public in the future in case the relevant businesses exceed a certain threshold. Apart from that, I think that there is much more going on around sustainability reporting, but because this is really a, a very current development, I would hand over to Leah because she can directly report from Brussels what, what is happening there and what is discussed on the floors. Yes, thanks very much. Indeed, there are broader measures on sustainability reporting and sustainability disclosures. In particular, the European Union is currently preparing the first ever EU-wide sustainability reporting standards, and companies would have to report against these standards under the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, the CSRD. And this directive is in the process of being agreed by EU decision makers as we speak. And so we expect that the sustainability reporting standards would include some sort of tax criteria. For instance, there could be a cross-reference to public country-by-country -country reporting, uh, which may have to be disclosed as part of the CSRD. On the political level, members of the European Parliament are also pushing to ensure that companies that benefit from state aid or that receive any kind really of EU or public funding uh, would have to demonstrate that they pay what they call their fair share of taxes. And finally, another important work stream is the fact that the European Commission is currently drawing a list of economic activities that can be considered green for investment purposes. This is called the green taxonomy. And in a similar fashion, the European Commission would like to draw up a social taxonomy in the coming years. So this classification system would measure whether an economic activity positively supports workers, consumers and communities. And one of the criteria to assess this would include transparent and non-aggressive tax planning. So we are seeing clearly a trend in Europe of link linking ESG disclosures, ESG standards, and tax fairness and tax transparency. The development of this uh, regulatory framework is really just starting. So that is a space that we need to, to carefully monitor. And of course, that is important for people listening to us today because these ESG standards uh, developed in Europe, they are likely to be replicated in other jurisdictions and used as you know, a precedent or basis for other standard setting initiatives. And for firms who have EU branches or even just in some cases activities in the European Union, they will likely have to apply these new rules. Thanks, Leah, and thanks, George. That's a, a lot of information, and there's a lot of things that are coming down the pipeline. Bob, George, I want to turn it back over to you and focus a little bit on what clients should be thinking about now. 
I have already mentioned some of the administrative challenges around CBAM. So this is something definitely to watch. When it comes to the various transparency requirements and those ongoing discussions, we see that most of the bigger EU companies have already joined some uh, all kinds of working groups, in parts even together with the fiscal authorities to discuss how this reporting could work and what kind of information could fairly be disclosed. So if you are invested in the EU with individual subsidiaries, it, it might make sense to get part of this discussion and to participate just to make those new mechanisms workable also for you. More generally speaking, also for the others, it, we would strongly advise because the impact of those disclosures being in the focus of activists, which could be a consequence of this, makes it necessary to, to follow those developments and start to discuss early what kind of data you would have to disclose under those new rules and how you could deal with those new provisions. If you have questions in this regard, we are happy to assist and happy to help you also with the latest updates from Brussels in this regard. And to add to that, the proposals, of course, also impact cash flow projections, profitability, uh, the optimal legal structure of multinational groups. So it's important to keep an eye out on developments to assess whether and to which extent groups may be impacted and what the best way is to manage this impact of the proposals, both from a financial and from a reputational perspective. And again, we can, of course, help with this. Leah, you mentioned that as part of the green taxonomy, that one criteria for that will be transparency and non-aggressive tax planning. Can you tell me a little bit about what criteria might go into determining what's aggressive tax planning? Has there been much discussion about that? Yeah, that's a very good question. And really, these criteria are just being, you know, developed as we speak. So there is not a lot like concretely at this stage, but it's clear that there are a few like elements criteria already existing. The European Union has drawn up its own blacklist, for instance, putting their countries that they consider tax havens. So uh, probably the same criteria and requirements that are used to draw this list would be would be used uh, for taxonomy. Probably also making sure that you know. OECD pillars and especially pillar two, so this minimum tax rate is respected would be another criteria. And the commission is saying that more and more, that as soon as there is an agreement, they would add it as a criteria to fair taxation. But it's really the beginning of, of this work stream. So that's what I can say at this stage. Okay, great. I, I hope we all get objective criteria rather than subjective ones. And Bob, you had talked a little bit about Deborah. Is there any plan to apply that differently for different industries? For example, financial services would obviously tend to be more leveraged than, say, an industrial concern. Is there any focus on how to measure that or what's the right standard to apply for various industries? That's also a good one. What you see in other kinds of proposals is that you do have exceptions for these kinds of industries. In particular, in, in thin cap kind of legislation, often financial industries have, uh, let's say, a different standard that they have to meet or, or are, they are excluded completely because they're already regulated. For the DEBRA proposal, there's not much concrete yet. Basically, where we are today is that there's an intention to do something and input from the market is being asked and not much more than that. Uh, but I'm definitely expecting that there will be uh, also considerations in this respect. Oh, great. Thanks. Well, our time's almost up. And uh, I want to thank you, my panelists, and my co-moderator, Lisa, and of course, all of our clients.
There's clearly a lot going on in the tax world, particularly in a European-led sense. So for U.S. clients, it's obviously very important to keep an eye on what's going on in our developments. On our website, you can find an overview of the proposals along with further background blogs in our podcast. If you have any further questions or want to discuss specifically, please feel free to reach out to any of us on today's panel or use your usual Freshfields contact. Thank you. Have a great day.